What king and kingdom do you ultimately serve? What is it worth to you to be a person of high principle? To have your name be one of respect? To show consistency in who you are as a Christian? These are questions that we all wrestle with, and we wrestle with them, especially out there in that world. Sometimes we wrestle with them when nobody's around and we're dealing with a moment of, you know, decision as to a, you know, maybe a temptation that's coming our way. Maybe it's been a long process where, you know, we're struggling with all kinds of things and wondering, what are we to do? I think the book of Daniel is going to answer some of those questions and give us a wonderful uh, place to anchor ourselves. As I look at the book of Daniel, I, I just want to give you quickly a title uh, in terms of how you can remember Daniel's name. If you think of the name Daniel, it's the name of Dan, and you'll see an E-L, you have an I-E-L ending. L is the name for God. So whenever you see E-L, and you have an E-L ending on a name, like Michael or Gabriel, it is the name of God. Dan is the name of a tribe, but it actually means judge. So Daniel's name, if you take the Dan and the E-L at the end, what you have is the name that means God is my judge. And it's a very fitting description of an author of a book and a man that we all love and respect because what Daniel really believed was God was his judge. He didn't believe ultimately that he was going to stand before a man or before his parents or his friends or his boss or even a king of Babylon. He believed that ultimately he would stand before the judge of all the earth. And I believe even though we don't know anything about Daniel's parents, we know that they had an influence on him. And after all, they named him Daniel. And if you guys uh, have gone through a process where you know, you find out um, the bride is pregnant and you maybe you go to a baby book of names and you're trying to decide, well, what am I going to name this child? I think for Christian parents especially, names have great significance and they did in Israel. And we have no information about Daniel's parents other than to know they named him Daniel. And it could be something like this. Son, daughter, there's going to be a time when I'm not around, there's going to be a time when maybe we get separated or I'm taken to heaven and I'm not going to be here anymore. And I've named you to remind you of something. Ultimately, God is your judge. I'm not your judge. God is your judge. And Hebrews 4.13 says that everything is naked and open before the one to whom we must give an account. We're going to give an account of our lives to the God of the universe and we're going to give an account to our Lord, our King, and our Savior. So Daniel is a book about believers living in a compromised culture. So don't think you're alone. If you feel like when you go to work or wherever you may be on a regular basis, and, and you may feel like you're the only Christian in that setting, but you're not alone. All of us as Christians who are trying to live a holy life are trying to do it in a compromised culture. Let's face it. Right now, uh, children starting at the age four and going to, I think, about 23 are now called Generation Z. Now, I know a lot of us have been decrying problems with millennials, right? All millennials, <laughs> right? And we've been doing a lot of that. And if you're a millennial, I apologize to you. But 
be of good cheer. We're going to talk about Gen Z for a moment. Gen Z is about 4 to 23, and somewhere in there. And uh, they're facing now a whole host of problems where postmodernism used to be the issue. Now we're really in a post-truth culture. Uh, in academia, in university settings now, they don't even know if anything can be said to be true anymore. And so here you are as a Christian, whatever decade you're living in of your age bracket right now, and maybe you've taken a stand on absolute truth, and maybe you want to get through to a child or a grandchild. You need to know the culture that they're living in right now they're not even sure if such a concept as truth exists anymore. So you can understand why we have to be having some different conversations with our uh, generations that are coming up, like what is Christianity? What does it really teach? Is it worth defending? Who do you want to be in this world? There's so much at stake, and it's coming at us in rapid fire. The latest is AB 2943, it's now on the docket in California. And the basic idea is if you try to talk to someone about homosexual struggles, same-sex uh, attractions, and let's say they come into a church setting and a pastor says to them, hey, I'd like to recommend a book, and I think you can overcome these same-sex attractions by understanding how God made you and dot, 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 you fill in the blanks. Well, now a law is trying to be passed in the state of California that if you direct someone to a book like that and try to change their way of looking at things or the world may say their orientation, you could be open to charges against you. Now, who do you think that's directed at? And they're, they're saying books, that if you recommend a book, well, what book would be included in that what book would we recommend to someone if they're dealing with that kind of same-sex attraction? Now, look, we know it's out there. We know people wrestle with all kinds of sins. But if someone was to come to a church and talk to a pastor, what would be the reason they would come? Well, most likely because they'd want to know, can they change? Is there hope for them? There's, a, there's some deep struggles with people who have same-sex attraction because a lot of them deep down know it's wrong. And so they're looking to, to understand if there's a way out, if there's some way to overcome this, just like a lot of other issues that we might have dealt with in the past or maybe we're dealing with right now. Maybe a gambling issue. Maybe it, it could be a drug. Maybe it could be uh, pornography. It could be a number of different things. And what would someone who is in a spiritual position, they would say, yeah, you can overcome that. Every sin can be overcome by the power of the risen Lord if you make a decision to get into your Bible, if you make a decision to grow and get your roots deeper in Jesus Christ, then you can change. We'd say that to anybody. But now, apparently, there's going to be one type of person that if we were to say that to and recommend a book, we could be uh, facing charges now. Now, this is where we are. This is AB 2943. And I would encourage you, we're sending out stuff to the church, but to call whoever you need to call, senators and the like, and let them know how you're feeling about such a law. And please, you know, pray for pastors and uh, leaders in churches because this is, this is becoming very real really fast, you guys. 
I, I'm not telling you a story up here. This is coming down the pike of California right now. And, and be assured, our governor is going to sign it if it gets to him. In the book of Daniel, we do have issues like how does the church interact with the state? For example, in Daniel 4.27, if you take a peek for a second, Daniel does say to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, as he's in the king's court, these words. I know we haven't done a verse yet, but we're doing an intro as well. Daniel 4.27 says, Therefore, O king, he's dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, may my advice be pleasing to you. Daniel, a Jewish man, says to the king of Babylon, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Does the church have a place to speak to the state, if you will? The answer is yes. Here's a Hebrew prophet, if you will, and Jesus does call Daniel a prophet, saying to the king of Babylon, Repent of your sins, and maybe it'll be a prolonging of your prosperity. Help out the poor. Do the right thing. The church does have a voice in the culture, but right now, and this is going to be especially true of Gen Z, but it's also true of millennials, that they are being shamed for what they believe because the alternative is so scientific. People like Richard Dawkins and others in our culture are making our teenagers feel like idiots because they believe in the God of the Bible. Because they believe that science leads them to a creator. Which, by the way, that's where the scientific evidence leads us, is to a creator. But many of our children and grandchildren, we need to know this as parents, go into the public school system if they're there, and they are shamed for their beliefs. There are statements on the internet, there are websites that will shame you just for believing in the God of the Bible. Ironically, the country was founded on belief in the God of the Bible. And yet, here we are today, following in the train of Europe and moving in on a slippery slope indeed. Here is Daniel in a foreign land, willing to take a stand. In fact, he's willing to say to a king who could say, off with your head in a microsecond, repent of your sins, king. Do the right thing. I think there is a place for that. And thank God that we do have some positive movements in America right now where people at the top, at least some of them, seem to be listening to biblical instruction and they're asking for prayer and they're praying over certain decisions that are being made and we thank God for that. Daniel is a captive in Babylon and yet he has decided to take a stand. Here we are in America and we can barely take a stand with our neighbor or our best friend or a family member? What if they came to America and said, you're, you're kicked out of your country and you ended up on the streets of, let's say, Mexico, and let's just say somehow you ended up in a palace with the president. Would you stand for your faith then? You know, this, the seeds of this belief, if you will, started, I think, just by seeing Daniel's name. Daniel's book is uh, twofold in terms of just the big picture. It is extremely practical and prophetic. If you're a note taker, you might want to write that down, two Ps. It's practical and prophetic. The first part of the book is very practical, although there is uh, overlays on both ends. So we get into, for example, chapter 6, and we're going to see Daniel uh, 
refusing the edict of the king, and he ends up in a lion's den, hence the picture of the lion behind me. We're going to look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll learn their Hebrew names in a moment. And they're going to take their stand and not bow before the colossal statue of Nebuchadnezzar. There's going to be practical ways that we can see how to take our stand in a culture filled with compromise. And then there's going to be prophetic uh, things in the book as well. Many, many prophecies in the book of Daniel, so much so that many skeptical scholars have tried to redate the book of Daniel to the Maccabean period. So you're talking about the intertestamental period from Malachi to Matthew. You had 400 years of silence there. And so we're moving about, you know, from 200 to 150 B.C., somewhere in there, in the Maccabean period. And they want to redate the book of Daniel to the Maccabean period because there are so many meticulous prophecies in Daniel 11 alone, there's like 100 specific prophecies that were fulfilled in Daniel's uh, lifetime or immediately thereafter. Daniel chapter 11, I should say, in the next couple hundred years after Daniel's life. Um, they want to redate it to that time, but I will tell you this. On solid scholarship, you can date the book of Daniel between 530 and 535 B.C. Daniel's the author. His name means God is my judge. And he writes between 530 and 535 B.C. If you're wondering who are some of Daniel's contemporaries who lived during the time of Daniel, people like Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, to name a few. And so in Daniel's world, uh, he, had, he had some contemporary prophets. He had some companions or even family members that were taken captive with him. And so it was easier, I think, for him to take a stand. There's an interesting uh, way to confirm the earlier date of the book of Daniel by looking at an ancient story. It's recorded by Josephus. He records an incident during the time of Alexander the Great, which supports the early authorship of Daniel. When Alexander's invasion reached the Near East, Judea, the high priest went out to meet him and showed him a copy of the book of Daniel in which Alexander the Great was clearly mentioned. As we'll see, Greece comes up in this book several times. Alexander was so impressed by this that instead of destroying Jerusalem, he entered the city peaceably and worshipped in the temple. That's recorded by Josephus. We do know that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, was completed around 250 B.C. You cannot date the book of Daniel to 170 or 150 if it's in the Septuagint, which was com completed in 250. Everybody understand? It was already there because it was completed around 530 to 535. And the only reason someone would want to reject that is because they want to reject the supernatural. They are scholars that come to the scriptures, and I put scholars in quotes, with a presuppositional view of anti-supernaturalism. They don't believe prophecy is possible. So why would we believe them on the dating of the book of Daniel? The book of Daniel is in the Septuagint. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus said Daniel was a prophet. And one of the incredible prophecies in the book of Daniel is the specific day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem 
on the, what we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. We'll look at that in detail as we move into chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. Daniel was not only a prophet, but in Daniel 10:11 it says that he was greatly loved in heaven or highly esteemed. Why was Daniel so greatly esteemed in heaven? Because he was a man of God. And heaven had a wonderful view of Daniel because Daniel was a faithful man and he was faithful to his calling in his lifetime. That's all you can do, by the way, is be faithful to your calling in your lifetime. You got a certain amount of time to live on this planet and then Daniel's name, God is my judge, we're going to stand before the Lord. And we all know that we're going to get in by grace and we're hoping and praying that we hear, well done, Good and faithful servant. Amen? And so this is why we want to study a book like this. Now, Daniel 1.1 kicks off this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, we're in Daniel 1.1, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, there were three uh, besieging episodes that occurred under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in terms of Jerusalem. He had the first wave in 605 B.C. The second wave came in 597 B.C. And the third wave in 586 B.C. So if you're interested, and this is something that I think is helpful for all students of Scripture, is that you're going to learn some history as you go along. And this is, a lot of the stuff is affirmed by secular history outside the Bible. The first wave, 605 B.C., that's when many believe that Daniel and his friends were taken captive in the first wave. The second wave came in 597 B.C., and uh, that's when some priests were taken and some of the royal family. There are many who believe that's when Ezekiel was taken into captivity in Babylon. And then finally in 586 B.C., a major milestone date for all students of Scripture— because in 586 B.C. is when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem to the ground. He raised it or leveled it. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. And about 150 years later, the southern kingdom was destroyed by Babylon. Assyria destroyed the north. Major date, 722 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, destroyed the south in 586 B.C. Those are two major dates to remember. But remember also that it came in waves and certain captives were taken uh, in each wave. Exiles were taken and we have a marker, a historical marker. You're going to find this in many of the books of the Bible. You find it's the third year of a certain king's reign. He's the king of Judah. He's in the south. This is about 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem to besiege it. Jerusalem just seemed to be one of those cities that when someone was, a, was mad, be it a king of Egypt or a king of Syria, they were kind of in that in-between place. If you get a chance to tour um, Israel, sometimes the guide will tell you that Jerusalem often suffered just because it was in between Egypt and Syria and other nations to the north. And sometimes nations would fight each other and kings would come back upset because they lost and they would take it out on Jerusalem. And this is just kind of the history of that city. War after war, destruction after destruction, pummeled. And uh, in 586 B.C. it was leveled to the ground. And so um, this is 
a little bit of the history of the backdrop of the book. Uh, Daniel and his friends, though, had an advantage, and here's one of the advantages before all of this occurred. There was a good king that lived, and his name was Josiah. And he made a lot of reforms uh, in Israel. He smashed the, uh, the idols down, and he reopened the temple, and the book of the law was read, and he realized that Israel was at a, at a bad place for, as a nation. And so under Josiah's positive reforms, Daniel and his friends probably got anchored in Scripture. And I think we could assume a couple things. Number one, Daniel's parents had a large positive impact on him. And number two, Josiah the king had a large positive impact. And it just goes to show you that if you have someone good in leadership, they can affect many people for many generations. And even though we live for a window of time, and sometimes we think in 50 years after I die, is anybody going to remember me? I don't know if that really matters, but really what matters is the impact that you can have on generations to come. Josiah, a good king, and he was a rare one. And the parents of Daniel are among a couple that we can think of, and we can think of the application for us tonight. Like, What's the positive impact that I can have in my lifetime on other people? I can do it if I have a platform of leadership, if I pour my life into others in terms of leading them spiritually. I can do it as a parent. I can do it as a grandparent. I can do it as a mentor. I can do it as a discipler. There is somebody that you can be pouring into right now to have a positive impact. And that impact may branch out in more ways than you could imagine. You touch one life, and that life becomes on fire for Christ, you never know how that's going to branch out positively. And so don't underestimate the power of a life that's been sanctified to God. Don't underestimate your ability to have a positive impact on people. Now you'll notice that under the sovereignty of God in verse 2, it says the Lord gave. One of the big themes of the book of Daniel, we can talk about courage, we can talk about faith, we can talk about being resolute, but the biggest theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. No matter where you are, no matter what's happened in your life tonight, no matter how bad things have gotten, God is sovereign. And God rules in the affairs of men. And he uh, overrules. Uh, you know, people think they're so strong. Later in chapter 4, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar walking on his balcony. Isn't this the great Babylon that I have built? <laughs> man, I'm bad. I'm a, I'm a bad man. And God's going to speak to him and say, Oh yeah? You are about to become a rock and roll star. Because your hair is going to grow long. Your nails are going to grow long. You're going to be a member of KISS. How many of you remember the KISS? The long nails, the long hair. And you're going to be out eating grass for seven years, old Nebby. Now, I like to call Nebuchadnezzar Nebby because some of you are VeggieTale fans. Can I get a witness? Anybody here? Come on. Just a few. Anyway, Nebby K. Nedzer is what he's called in VeggieTales. So sometimes you will hear Pastor Michael just say, Nebi. That comes, that's inspired by VeggieTales. So just so you know where that comes from. Now I want you to know that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, and I could tell you a lot <clears throat> about Jehoiakim, but just know this. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was an evil king. And finally God said, enough is enough. And I am going to use a foreign army to discipline my people. This is the book of Jeremiah. Let's, let's flip there. I want to show you just a little bit of backdrop. Uh, just got to go a little bit back now. Go to Jeremiah 25 and take a look at verse 1. Remember, uh, Babylon was a land of idols. It was a pagan land. <clears throat> and Israel and Judah had been warned over and over again. This is Jeremiah 25. This is the role of a prophet to warn the nation. And here's what it says. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now we just read about the third year of Jehoiakim. So we know this is a little bit before that. About a year before that. The son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now Josiah was the good king. But Jehoiakim wasn't. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah. To all the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying. From the thirteenth year of Josiah the son of Ammon. King of Judah even to this day. These 23 years, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent you all his servants, the prophets, again and again. But you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, from the evil of your deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord God has given you, has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after what? Other gods. To serve them and to worship them. This is the, the ongoing problem for Israel. Idolatry. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, as he speaks through Jeremiah, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send... And take all the families of the north, declares the Lord. I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. He'll become God's servant in the sense that he's carrying out God's discipline. And will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all the nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them, make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting des desolation. Moreover, I will take them Take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and a horror. And these nations shall, shall serve the king of Babylon how long? Seventy years. And that was because they didn't let the land rest. Then it will be when seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord. For their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, I will make it an everlasting desolation. I will bring upon that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, even them. And I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of wine of the, of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Now I could say much more in terms of what, the, uh, what Jeremiah says, but some of you have read the book of Lamentations and that is credited to Jeremiah. 
And Jeremiah is the last wave of captives. So you're talking about now 586 B.C. The book of Lamentations is about a lament over what? The destruction of Jerusalem. Jeremiah had to watch it and then write about it. And he was called the weeping prophet for a reason. And so you can see that when the Lord gave, back to the book of Daniel, um, when the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, Jehoiakim had been warned. The nation had been warned through the prophets. But Jehoiakim wouldn't stop his nonsense. And so he continued to rebel against God, and God did what he promised he was going to do. Gleason Archer, who's commenting on this idea of the sovereignty of God over the affairs of man, says these words. The surpassing health of Daniel and his three companions after 10 days on a simple vegetable and water diet, chapter 1. The miraculous disclosure to Daniel of the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 2. The amazing deliverance of Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace, chapter 3. The previous warning to Nebuchadnezzar of seven years of dehumanizing insanity because of his pompous pride, chapter 4. The terrifying prediction inscribed on the banquet wall of Belshazzar, followed by a speedy fulfillment of the same. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting Belshazzar and his knees. In chapter 5, we're going to watch Knocking Together. Oh, that's to come. It's another great story. Daniel's deliverance from the lion's den. All clearly show the Lord God of Israel was in charge of the tide of human affairs and was perfectly able to deliver his people from pagan oppression during their captivity. Whatever situation you may find yourself in tonight, just know God is sovereign. God is the master, if you will, over the affairs of men. And so even though this has happened, and if you're a Daniel or a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel, you have to be asking some deep questions like, why? How many of you have been asking deep questions like, why another school shooting, Lord? Why Texas? Why this uh, science teacher, I think it was in uh, Indiana, has to tackle a junior high student to try to keep him from killing uh, fellow students or teachers? Why? How many before these last two have we had? How many of us are asking the why questions like, where are you, God? What is going on? Could Daniel have asked those questions? You know, as he was taken captive, it's quite possible that Daniel had a, something put into his nose and was pulled into a line of people walking to captivity for 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. 500 miles. You think you got fed along the way? You think you were treated with Respect? I think not. And to Babylon they went. And if you're Daniel, you're thinking, man, I grew up in a church-going family. I, I was growing up in the ways of Torah. I was a, a man, a young man who decided I wanted to follow God and serve God. And I'm in some line of slaves headed to Babylon. What? You think he had some legitimate why questions? I think so. And yet you're going to watch Daniel take his stand in a polluted land because I think he understood the sovereignty of God. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
along with some of the vessels of the house of God, Daniel 1-2. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, another name for Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. In the final wave in 586 B.C., when they destroyed the temple, they took some of the holy vessels consecrated for the house of God into the temple of their God. Ancient uh, um, armies would battle under the ensigns of their gods. That, that's another way to say under the banners of their gods. And their banners, which were like glorified flags, would typically depict an image of their deity or deities, plural. So they would have a flag and they would, they would be marching out. The people of Israel, what was their ensign? What did they fight behind? The ark of God. Sometimes the worship leaders were the ones leading the armies of God. They fought under the banner of Yahweh. The Lord is my banner. And so they would go out. And when one army defeated another army, they would often take sacred vessels. They would take it as a way to say, our God defeated your God. And remember the Ark of the Covenant we've already studied in uh, 1 Samuel was taken into the house of Dagon, the Philistine god, right? And we know what happened to Dagon. He ended up falling before the ark and doing a little worship before the ark, right? It's a pretty funny scene, but all of a sudden, as we uh, are doing kind of an introduction to this book, we see that these vessels, these holy things, so meticulous in how they're made, so important for the everyday working of the temple of the Lord are taken by Nebuchadnezzar and taken into the house of his God. How sad. How tragic. How, how much would you be distraught if you saw things that were holy, things that only a few people maybe even got to see in their lifetime, now treated like they were nothing? Maybe as you're walking to Babylon in a line of captives, the, the guards of the Babylonian army are laughing at you. Maybe you're naked. Maybe they've done everything they can to shame you and your God and say, oh yeah, that's quite a God you got there in Israel. Yeah, we heard stories about how he parted the Red Sea and did things like that, but apparently he's not that hot because here you are. There's a psalm that depicts um, what happened and I think it's very compelling. I'd like to take you there. It's uh, Psalm 137. So go back to the, the book of Psalms. Psalm 137. Let's take a look at um, this psalm as we consider what the captives may have been feeling like Daniel and his three companions. Psalm 137 says these words. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Psalm 137, verse 1. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs. Psalm 137, verse 3. Our tormentors mirth, and they said, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. Hey, hey, Jewish boy, sing one of those worship songs you used to sing in the temple with these vessels that we are holding here in our hands. Sing one of those worship songs. Can you imagine if that were you? Can you imagine if they demanded of you to sing your favorite worship song as you're going to a, as a captive to a foreign land? And 
by extension, the implication is our God's stronger than your God. And why don't you go ahead? Hey, we'll let you sit down for a moment. But while you sit, why don't you sing one of those worship songs to your God? And there by the rivers of Babylon, we wept. We thought of our homeland. We thought of Zion. Maybe a lot of people sitting there hearing some of them sing thought, how many times did Jeremiah warn us? How many times did Ezekiel warn us about what would happen if we as a nation continued to follow the ways of idolatry? And the response, how can we sing the Lord's song, verse 4, in a foreign land? How can we sing? How can I sing now? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Ooh, that's a psalm, <laughs> but there it is. And so you can see the tension, the pathos, the emotion. If you can put yourself in Daniel's sandals for a moment, I think you're beginning to see how strong this man really is. And at the time that he makes the march from, Bab from Jerusalem to Babylon, he's probably 15. Can I ask you parents, grandparents, if your child or grandchild was taken from America to a foreign land, could they take similar stands to these four Hebrew youths in the book of Daniel? How well have we grounded them? You know, uh, I just heard a survey that says that one in ten families that go to church every Sunday do Bible study with their kids during the week. One in ten. And you may be wondering, and maybe this is something that you have thought about and wrestled with, and maybe it's, you've made some adjustments. But we wonder about biblical illiteracy in the church of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that we have biblical illiteracy when one in ten church-going families study the Bible with their kids during the week? Hello? It's not hard to figure out why our kids are biblically illiterate. We don't open the Bible with them. It's a one-to-one -one correspondence, you guys. This is reality. And now we got what we got. And, of course, our passion, our desire is to change. It's got to start with us. And so... Back in Daniel, I am not going to finish chapter 1. And all God's people said, oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. I can see this coming. He's done two verses. And I know how he is. I'm going to sit down and weep in the pew. Forget about by the rivers of Babylon. Be of good cheer. Pastor Michael can be flexible. We're going to just do a few more verses. But here we go. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz... Verse 3, Daniel 1, the chief of his officials, if you have a New King James, it says the master of his eunuchs. The word official 
is a word used for eunuch. It's Cyrus in uh, Hebrew. To bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Now, there's a prophecy in Isaiah that I'd like to show you. And I, I know we're all, all over the board, but uh, I want to show you how this sets up. This is Isaiah 39. Isaiah 39. Let's, let's flip over there. I want you to see this prophecy. The prophecy is given to King Hezekiah about generations to come beyond his time. Everybody remember when uh, Isaiah was written? Just got a guess? Anybody throw it out? 700? I heard somebody say 700. Yeah, you guys said it, right? 700. Daniel was written around where? 530 to 535. Okay, here's a prophecy. Read it with me. This is Isaiah 39. Seven. Oh, let's go back to verse 5. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. 39.6 Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that your fathers have laid up in store, to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you shall beget, future generations, shall be taken away, and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Do you believe in prophecy? Do you believe that prophecy is pretty specific? Do you know that some 150 years before this ever happened in the book of Daniel, more like 170 years, it was prophesied through Isaiah that Hezekiah's family members would be court officials in the land of Babylon. Is the Bible an inspired book? You show me any other book that does that kind of stuff. The Bible is the word of God. And Hezekiah was told, if you turn back to the book of Daniel, that family members were going to be court officials in the land of Babylon. Now, some of you say, well, but wait a minute. God was sending prophets to the land of Israel, warning them, telling them to repent. But God already knew they weren't. And God is sovereign and God is omniscient. And I don't know how all that works. But the warning did come. The prophecies were laid down. Now, did Daniel and his friends become eunuchs? Were they castrated? Why would this occur? Well, because if you were taken a captive into a foreign land, they sometimes would castrate you so you could be around the harem of the king and not touch his women. It's basically how this worked. So there are some that believe that when Daniel and his friends arrived in Babylon, they were immediately castrated. Can you imagine being 15 years old and going through that? Now, we don't know for sure if that happened because the word over time, Cyrus, came to mean a servant or an official in the king's court. For example, Potiphar was uh, called by this title, yet he was married according to Genesis 37-36. And we know Potiphar's wife was trying to tempt Joseph. So it is not a clear case that uh, this did happen to them, but if it did, you could understand how uh, even more this would have been so hard to endure. They called um, the leader of the eunuchs to take some of the Sons of Israel back in Daniel 1.3, including the royal family. Uh, there are scholars that would tie 
uh, Daniel and his friends directly to Hezekiah's line based upon Isaiah 39.7 and then I think uh, tying him to, I, I believe it's Zedekiah as well. We want youths in whom was no defect, verse 4, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court, and ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now what they would do when they grabbed you as a prisoner of war, and you were a captive, and you had promised to serve in the foreign land as a slave, is if you had the goods and they liked what they saw, they would begin to take you through what's called an assimilation process. And the assimilation process included educating you in the ways of their land and their gods. And so they would immediately try to teach you, for example, lessons on the occult. We know that the occult is very much tied to Babylon. In fact, remember, Bible students, that Babylon, from Genesis 10 with uh, Babel, um, and you have um, uh, Nimrod going all the way to Revelation 17 and 18. What is the thread throughout your Bible? It's a Babylonian system based upon the occult and based upon an anti-God, especially the God of the Bible, an anti-God approach. In fact, Revelation 17 and 18 depicts Babylon, perhaps not a literal Babylon, but a metaphorical one, in terms of a world system in rebellion to the God of the Bible. And this thread runs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, but it also runs through the book of Daniel. What they would do is they would take you, and look at verse 4, and they would teach you the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So now you'd have to learn their language. Now you'd have to learn their literature. You'd read all their famous books. Uh, there are, there's archaeological discoveries <clears throat> which would indicate that one of the early lessons you would get is in the occult, in witchcraft, in all those things tied to their forms of worship. And so they would try to indoctrinate you, something that is going on today in our schools. Uh, most professors in universities are atheists. What, are they, what do you think they want to accomplish with your college student? I mean, I mean, some of our college students have come up to me and said, I'm going through this in a class I have right now. My teacher has marginalized me, shamed me, pointed me out in the class, and made me look like a buffoon because I'm a Christian. Well, there's a similar indoctrination going on in our universities. Can I say to you, parents, I'm not sure it's the wisest move to send your child to a secular university. I'd be really careful. It may be right for them, especially if they have a good foundation, especially if they're surrounded by Christians, but I would say just pray through that really hard because I don't even know what it gets them anymore, frankly. Uh, anyway, I could spend another couple hours on that one, but... I'm not going to go there right now. And so they would train them in the lit literature and language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The king appointed for them a daily ration of the king's choice food from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated for three years, so almost like a university education in length, 
and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So for three years, you come over, and immediately you get assimilated. You get indoctrinated with the religion, with the literature, with the ways, with the food, with everything. And of course, if you're a Jew, you've got some issues because the food ain't kosher, right? So now you're dealing with some issues there. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, we're introduced to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now how many of you would all confess that you know the Babylonian names of those three better than you know their Hebrew names. Anybody? Because we all know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I have some friends who say, call them by their Hebrew names. And I'm like, uh, Azariah. Uh. Anyway, so let's learn the Hebrew names. They are, we all know Daniel. But then there's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, the commander of the officials, part of the assimilation process, and here's where we'll conclude tonight, gave them new names. To Daniel, they assigned Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, they called him Shadrach. Now, an easy way to remember the last two is the starting letter. Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah was named Abednego. So, According to Josephus, I mentioned earlier, all four of these teens were members of Zedekiah's royal family. And so you have the name shifting. Why would you change somebody's name? Again, it's part of the assimilation process. Daniel means what? God is my judge. They changed his name to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king or protect his life. Bel is one of their false gods. Hananiah's name means the Lord, Yahweh, is gracious. They changed his name to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, one of their false gods, or Aku is the moon god. Uh, Mishael means who is like the Lord. He was given the name Meshach, which means who is like Aku, one of the false gods of Babylon. And finally, Azariah means the Lord, or Yahweh, is my helper, and his name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego or Nebo, the god of vegetation in Babylon. And so as these young men arrive, just imagine how many blows they've taken. Poof, 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 poof. Now you got a new name. You're going through this school of reindoctrination, assimilation, brainwashing, the, the food that's put before you, everything is just one gut punch after another. Perhaps your parents are dead, you've lost a lot of friends, and here you are in a foreign land. Doesn't it amaze you that these guys do what they do? Does it amaze you that they take the stands that they take? Does it amaze you how young they were? Sometimes we dismiss young people, and we can be wrong to do that. We think, ah, you don't know anything, whippersnapper! When you've been around and have a limp like me, we can talk about some things. <laughs> right? Maybe we need to rethink that. Because some of the younger people who are around us can instill some fresh vigor into us. Amen? And maybe they have some good ideas. If we don't talk over them, 
we might hear some good things that could be applied to the church because we had new ideas when we were their age too. Oh, Lord. Yeah, it's true. And sometimes you have to show them a picture when you were young. I was young once too. Look at this. And they're like, no. That's not you. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> I know it's a vague resemblance. But anyway. How do you stand strong in our Babylon? You have to make up your mind. You have to determine to be a Daniel. You can float downstream like the rest of the dead fish in our world. Or you can decide to swim upstream, swim against the tide, and dare to be different. Determine to be a Daniel. Will you? What keeps you from it? Peer pressure? What your friends might think? Do you, do you guys remember, some of you are just out of high school, but do you remember how much we cared about what our friends in high school thought? Oh, now I don't even talk to anybody who I went to high school with. Things we put so much, you know, stake in. Doesn't matter. A hill of beans. <laughs> Father, we are grateful for this book as we have just kind of touched on the opening verses, but we are so grateful for what the book represents. It represents a call. For me, it represents a fresh look in the mirror. And there's some things that I think I've determined. But i got to kind of redetermine things one day at a time, Lord. And I'm sure that's true for everybody in this room, everyone who will listen to this later. And as we launch into this incredible book, I pray that each of us will just let it so speak to us and so transform our lives that we will determine to be like these four. And they're such great examples of what it means in a compromised culture to, to overcome it, Lord, to conquer compromise. You always provide a way. You are the way. And Lord, thank you for your patience. Sometimes we have to circle around the city many times before we get it. Sometimes we have to skin our knees. Sometimes we have to taste the discipline of God before we get it, but thank you that you are so patient and so uh, relentless in the way that you pursue us because you love us. And we know you want to use us to be Daniels to others, that others can say, man, that person made it and I can make it too. Would you keep your head and heart bowed? I'm just going to ask you to, to do a little business with the Lord. Uh, if you're not a Christian tonight, the first order of business is to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Make him your king. Ask him to be your savior. Ask him to be your Lord. Enter into his service. Trust him for your salvation. Trust his finished work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Ask him to save you right now. If you're a Christian and maybe this is really resonating with you and you're saying, yeah, man, this is a perfect time to be in the book of Daniel, then praise God. And open up your heart and your ears. That's what I want to do. And just say, Lord, speak to me through these coming 16 weeks, whatever it's going to be. Lord, just revolutionize my faith, my passion, my convictions. 
my desire to serve and please you. And Lord, for those who maybe, maybe they feel like I'm, I'm in Babylon right now. I feel mocked, I feel ridiculed, I feel shamed, but even though I'm there, I want to take a stand. Lord, may you strengthen your people tonight. Just refresh them, bless them, remind them that you love them so much and you're so good. And we have so many blessings to count in this country tonight. I, I pray that you'll help us have a joyful attitude as we walk out of here just counting our blessings and making sure that we don't ignore the warning signs, that we do everything we can with prayer, with taking our stands in our culture to make sure that you are honored here, Lord, as best we can. And we pray that in Jesus' holy name. All God's people said,